Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, coming all the way from Philadelphia. It's a pleasure to be here, and Henson is a church that I and the churches that I've been a part of for the last decade have prayed for regularly, and yeah, this is a, a sweet congregation of believers. It's my honor and privilege to share God's word with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And I'm going to read from verses 12 to verse 30. At the conclusion of my reading, I will say this is God's word. And if you believe that it's God's word, then I want to encourage you to respond. Thanks be to God. Matthew 11, beginning at verse 12. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And we pray now, Father, for attentive ears and hearts as your word is proclaimed. And in this time, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in the context of this passage, the Lord Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist. So if you remember from this passage, John the Baptist is in prison and he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus in verse three, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And the Lord Jesus responds in verses four and five by speaking about his works, which confirmed that he was the fulfillment of multiple messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. He then sends John's disciples back to John, and in verses 9 and 11, he affirms John the Baptist when he addressed the crowd that remained. And he continues speaking about John in our passage today, and I want us to observe four things that the Lord Jesus speaks about. Number one, a word about the kingdom. A word about the kingdom. Number two, a word about unbelief, a word about unbelief. The word about the kingdom, we'll see it in verses 11 through 15. The word about unbelief, we'll see it in verses 16 through 19. Third, a word about judgment, a word about judgment. We see that in verses 20 through 24. And then fourth, a word about salvation, a word about salvation. We see that in verses 25 through 30. First, a word about the kingdom. Look again at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. So from the jump, I wanna tell you that verse 12 is very difficult to interpret. And the reason why is because you have to answer two questions that can change the meaning of the verse depending on how you answer them. So question one is this, is the verb that the ESV translates suffered violence, is that an active verb or is that a passive verb? So in other words, if the kingdom of heaven is the subject, if the verb is passive, you get the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence. Violence is happening to the kingdom of heaven. If, if it's an active verb, then the idea would be that the kingdom of heaven is violently or forcefully advancing. And so that's why the ESV has a footnote in verse 12 that says, or coming violently. So that's question number one. Is the kingdom of heaven suffering violence or is it coming violently? And then the second question is, who are the violent? So when it says at the end of verse 12, the violent take it by force. Is that Christians being spoken of? Is it the enemies of the cross? 
If it's Christians, then this verse is teaching something about the way that we should approach entering the kingdom, which is not passively, but violently. And we certainly see this teaching in other places like Matthew 13, 45, where Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in, in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the wise person who sees the kingdom of heaven for what it is, sees it as the greatest opportunity in the world and seizes it. And that certainly should be our mindset. But if it's the enemies of the cross being referred to, then the idea would be that violent people are attacking the kingdom. Remember, John the Baptist is in jail, and soon he's going to be beheaded. And so if you interpret it that way, then verse 12 is actually Jesus' explanation for why John the Baptist is in jail. John the Baptist proclaimed the kingdom of heaven as Jesus' forerunner. And so if this is true, then the way to understand this verse would be, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven violently or forcefully advances, even though violent persons try to attack it or plunder it. What's interesting is that both of those things are true. So the enemies of the cross came against the kingdom of heaven. And those who embrace Jesus as the Christ lay hold of the kingdom. So it may even be a play on words by Jesus to communicate both ideas. But the main point about the kingdom in this passage is found in the next verses. Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, when it says he is Elijah who is to come, this is a reference to a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, which says in Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." And so based on these verses, the Jews read it literally and expected a return of Elijah. If you recall from 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah is one of the only people in the Bible who was taken directly to God. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so the way that the Jews understood Malachi 4 is that Elijah would make an actual return to the earth. But I believe that Jesus' teaching here is, is, is that it's more symbolic than literal and that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And this is confirmed over in Matthew 17. So in Matthew 17, 10, the disciples ask him, then why do the scribes, and, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So when you put it all together, you can see that what the Lord Jesus is saying is that all that the prophets and the law predicted, all that the Old Testament was looking ahead to, 
the Messiah that Israel was waiting for, all the preparations that had been made, the Lord Jesus is saying, the king is here. You're looking at him. I am the fulfillment, if you're willing to accept it. He's calling on them to exercise faith. He who has ears to hear, not physical ears, but spiritual discernment. None of this is going to make sense apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the king is here. The very one that Israel said they were waiting for, he has come. And you would think that that would cause Israel to rejoice. But there was one big problem, and that problem was unbelief. That brings us to our second point, a word about unbelief. Look again at verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children in the marketplaces calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So as the Lord Jesus reflects on his hearers, he gives them an analogy about children to illustrate his point. And the point is very clear. The point is that unbelief is never satisfied. Unbelief is never satisfied. So the children want to play a game. They say, let's play the wedding game. We got the flutes. Let's play. And the kids say, no, we don't want to play the wedding game. And the kids say, okay, you don't want to do wedding? Let's, let's do the funeral. Let's do the funeral game. No, we don't want to do the funeral game. So whatever it is, nothing that the, the kids suggested was satisfactory to the other group of kids, children, all the children in the building. I am talking to you, kids. Yes, children, I see you. I see you, children. Have you ever experienced that, kids, where you wanted to play a game with your brother or your sister or your friend? And they say, no, I don't want to play that game. Or you say, okay, let's play a different game. And your brother or your sister or your friend says, no, I don't want to play that game. Has that ever happened, kids? If, if, if that's happened, raise your hand. Okay, okay, I'm not the only one. Okay. Okay, kids, you know what? The next time that happens, look at your brother or your sister or your friend and say, you're in the Bible. <laughs> and you can point them to this passage, okay? Jesus compares himself and John the Baptist to the two types of games. What kind of prophet do you want? Do you want someone who's rugged and serious like John the Baptist? No, we don't want John the Baptist. He's too stern. He's too removed from the people out in the desert somewhere. Okay, okay, you don't, you don't want the, the rugged, locust-eating prophet? Well, how about the prophet that comes with grace and performs healings, who turns wedding, uh, wine, who goes to weddings and turns water into wine? No, we don't want that. He's with the people too much. We don't want the gracious prophet. So then they're not going to accept 
anybody that God sends. And so what that shows us is that the problem is not with the prophets. The problem is with the people and with their unbelief. Unbelief is never satisfied. That was the case then, and it's still the case today. Just consider the grace of God in the kinds of preachers that he sends, the different types of preachers. We've just seen it. Look at me, and then look at Michael. (laughs) We're different kinds of preachers. That's a good thing. I think about Thomas Terry over at Trinity, different kind of preacher. What do you want? Do you want the buttoned-up preacher? Do you want the preacher with the tats? Who would, you want the cool preacher? You want the corny preacher? What do you want? You want the academic preacher? You want the one down to earth? Who do you want? Well, none of that matters to an unbelieving heart. I see this in hip hop culture all the time. They hear from a dude that's not hip hop and they say, ah, he's corny. I don't want to hear anything from him. And then they hear from the dude who is hip-hop, and they say, oh, he's too hip-hop. You can't be hip-hop and a preacher. Unbelief is never satisfied. Christians, have you ever tried to talk to an unsaved family member or a friend about the gospel, and no matter how much you answer their questions, they still won't accept it? Don't be surprised by that. That's what unbelief does. At the end of the day, it takes the Spirit of God to open someone's eyes to the truth. That's my testimony. My mom argued with me for years, and nothing that she said made a difference whatsoever. You know what she did? She took it to prayer. She took it to the Lord. And in God's grace, he eventually opened my eyes. She prayed with me, prayed for me daily, every single day for 14 years, even as I strayed further and further away from the Lord. I once told my mom, I will never become a Christian. Stop talking to me about that. God has a great sense of humor (laughs) because here I am now (laughs) proclaiming Jesus to you. And so what that means, it's a call for us for, for prayer, for our unbelieving family and friends. Pray for them, ask God to do for them what they cannot do for themselves because what God must do is overcome their unbelief and open their eyes to the truth. And if this is you this morning, so if you don't believe in Jesus and there's nothing that can change your mind, you might wanna ask yourself, well, why is that? Why is it that I refuse to accept anything anyone tells me about Jesus? Why is your mind made up in that way? Have you not been wrong about other things before? Are you not even open to the possibility that you might be wrong about this? Don't be like unbelieving Israel who would never be satisfied no matter who God sent to them. Notice what the Lord Jesus says at the end of verse 23. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Israel is rejecting both John the Baptist and Jesus. And Jesus says, even so, wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. John was a mighty prophet who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy as Jesus' forerunner. 
And we know this because of what the Lord said up in verse five, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. So the Lord is doing the very things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, then that confirms John's ministry as his forerunner. And so the Lord is saying, despite you're not being satisfied with either John or me, that doesn't change what I'm doing and how that testifies that what I'm saying is true. Your unbelief does not change who God is. All unbelief does is seal your judgment before a holy God. And that, that's what we see in our next point, a word about judgment. Look again at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In these verses, we learn at least three things about judgment, three observations. Number one, there will be a judgment day. There will be a judgment day. In verses 22 and verse 24, the Lord assumes a day of judgment. The time is coming at the end of the age when every single person who has ever lived will stand before God to face judgment. This is taught everywhere in the Bible. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God has fixed a day. It's not a matter of if there will be a judgment day, but a matter of when. It is a certainty. And what the Lord is saying about the cities that he did the miracles in is it's not going to go well for you on that day. Whenever we see that word woe, it should make us pause. Jesus is acting in his prophetic office. One of the most common aspects of Old Testament prophets is the pronouncement of blessings or beatitudes and woes or curses. And we see in our text or this earlier in the passage, the Lord had already given a, bless, a blessing up in verse six. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And here he's giving woes. I can't imagine hearing anything worse than these words from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Woe to you. It means that you're done. Your judgment is absolutely certain. And it's really just a preview of what Jesus is going to say on the last day, right before sending them to hell. Matthew 25, verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and 
his angels. Now, unbelievers try to deny that this is the case, that there will be a judgment day. But deep down, I believe it's something that we all actually long for, even if we don't know it. You'll remember a while back in the news, it was reported that Jeffrey Epstein, the multimillionaire who was arrested for trafficking young girls, he committed suicide in his cell. And as I remember, as I looked through the comments, it was interesting how upset people were that he wasn't brought to trial before killing himself. Instinctively, they knew that if this life was all that there is, then there would never be justice for him. The same thing with Hitler. That's how people talk about Hitler a lot of times. He just, he just killed himself. He escaped justice. And, and, and that feeling is very unsatisfying, even to the unbeliever. In his sermon on the final judgment, Jonathan Edwards makes the argument that it's agreeable to reason the idea of a judgment day is agreeable to reason. And this is what he says, quote, though justice in this world sometimes takes place, yet how often do injustice, cruelty, and oppression prevail? How often are the righteous condemned and the wicked acquitted and rewarded? How common is it for the virtuous and the pious to be depressed and the wicked to be advanced? How many thousands of the best men have suffered intolerable cruelties merely for their virtue and piety and in this world have had no help, no refuge to fly to? The world is very much ruled by the pride, covetousness, and passions of men. And then he continues, now, how, re how reasonable is it to suppose that God, when he shall come and put an end to the present state of mankind, will, in an open public manner, with the whole world being present, rectify all these disorders, and that he will bring all things to trial by a general judgment, in order that those who have been oppressed may be delivered, that the righteous may be pleaded and vindicated, and wickedness, which has been approved, honored, and rewarded in this world, may receive its due disgrace and punishment." It's agreeable to reason that there will be a judgment day. The time will come when God will right every wrong. He will make all things that are crooked straight. And on that day, there's not going to be any argument that anyone can put up to outsmart God or to outwit him. He will get his glory the only question is, will he get his glory in your salvation or your everlasting destruction? The time is now to repent, turn from your sins, and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a judgment day. Observation number two is that there will be degrees of punishment. So number one is that there will be a judgment day. Number two is that there will be degrees of punishment. Notice what it says in verse 22, more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. Verse 24, more tolerable for Sodom. Everyone will not receive the same punishment. Though hell will be unspeakably awful 
for anyone who goes there, what people experience in hell will differ according to the degree of their sin before God. Just as there's degrees of guilt, there's degrees of punishment. Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament, they were cities that were known for their wickedness. The same with Sodom. And Jesus is saying that those places, they were guilty, but that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, they were even more guilty because they saw the miracles of Jesus and didn't repent. They had more information than the previous societies that had not seen, seen Jesus with their very own eyes. This connects to what the Lord said up in verse 11, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Well, why is that true? Why are they greater? They're greater because they have the greater privilege of experiencing the fulfillment of what John the Baptist was pointing to. In the same way, just as believers under gospel preaching have greater privileges than John, unbelievers under gospel preaching have greater judgment and condemnation. Observation number three. God will judge according to his perfect knowledge. God will judge according to his perfect knowledge. Look again at verse 21. He says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then further down at the end of verse 23, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. All human judges are limited in their knowledge. They can only judge based on the evidence that they have available to them. And apart from actually being there, when the crime occurred, their knowledge is limited. Not so with God. God knows all things. He knows all actions, and he knows the motives behind all actions. Not only that, but God not only perfectly knows what we do he, and perfectly knows why we do it, he also perfectly knows what we would have done had the circumstances been different. God knows all things actual and all things possible. And so what we learn from these verses is that God will judge based on knowing what we would have done if the circumstances had been different. A lot of times we say things like, oh man, if I, if I lived back then, I would have never done that. Really? You don't know. You don't know, you don't know what you would have did if you lived back then. But God knows. God knows exactly what we would have done had we lived back then. And that's generally not good news for us. That is a sobering thought. Well, right after giving this sobering word of judgment, we see a word about salvation. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And so the first thing we see about our salvation is that, that we have a sovereign savior, a sovereign Savior, when the Lord Jesus sees that people are rejecting him, he's not confused about why that is. He's not an impotent savior wringing his hands in heaven, wondering why people don't accept him. No, he knows that even his rejection is a part of God's sovereign plan. 
In fact, he says that God has hidden these things from the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the Lord Jesus in his upcoming death was a stumbling block to the Jews. But remember, he said in verse six, he said, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. And so what that means for us is that if Jesus is not a stumbling block to you, give thanks to God. If you have embraced Jesus for who he is in the gospel, if you believe the good news of what he's done, what he's accomplished in his life, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection, if you believe that and you embrace Jesus, Praise be to God. It is a gift. It's a gift from, like, the very fact that we embrace Jesus is a gift from Jesus. I thank God that I woke up still a Christian this morning. Because that means that God is keeping me. He's sustaining me. I, I, I do not, none of us remains in Christ by our own power by our own effort, by our own striving. That's not how, it's, it's the keeping power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's promised that he's going to bring us all the way to resurrection. He who began, who started a, a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He says in verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been chosen to have the Father revealed to you. And Jesus' sovereignty, and apart from you, Jesus made that decision. Look at verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So do you know the Father this morning? Give thanks to Jesus, because Jesus chose to reveal the Father to you. So he's a sovereign Savior. Also notice that he is a gracious Savior. Look at verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's amazing. So after making these grand statements on judgment and God's sovereignty, these heavy, weighty statements, in the very next breath, Jesus sends out the call, come to me. And, you know, it, it, you see, it says, all who labor. All who labor. So Jesus is talking to tired people. Anybody tired? 
Anybody tired? This, this, this is comfort for the tired. Tired of your sin. Tired of the pain. Tired of the depression. Just tired from life. Broken relationships. Physically, just in our bodies. I feel it the older I get. I'm just tired. The elders in my family have this saying, they talk about being sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's who Jesus is talking to. You sick and tired of being sick and tired? Are you tired of messing up with the same sin over and over again? Are you tired of trying to earn God's favor If you feel any of that, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. And he says, heavy laden. That just means being weighed down. Just feeling burdens. Weighed down by the fallen world around us. You don't have to be on social media, but for five minutes to just feel weighed down all the things, all the arguing, all the bickering, all the bad news, weighed down by a sense of guilt, weighed down by shame over sins that we've committed. And I I want to say something about shame because I think it's important as it relates to this passage. So, so shame has become something of a bad word in our culture, right? Um, so you, you, know, you, don't, you don't, want, don't, don't shame anybody. And, and I, I, I get the point of that if it's talking about not unrighteously judging people in that sense. Um, but shame is actually, like proper shame is actually a gift from the Lord. So... The definition of shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. So biblically, shame is something that God uses in order to make us aware of our guilt before him, not to leave it there, but that we would take that guilt and go to Jesus. That's the purpose of shame. And God actually condemns his people in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 6.15. Listen to what he says about apostate Israel. He says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. You see what the Lord is saying there? He's saying because of the sin that they were committing against God, they should have been ashamed but they weren't. They forgot how to blush. And so what is the proper response to shame? Well, it's not to be gloried in. And I think that, and and so, so what happens is that those feelings of shame, they don't just go away. And so there's ways, there's different kinds of ways that people use to try to appease those feelings, right? And so in our culture, what tends to happen is there's either self-medicating, right? Um, or, or doubling down even more and trying to, to, 
make righteous what you know to be unrighteous. That's what we see in our culture. They glory in their shame. That's not the proper response. The proper response to shame is not to wallow in it, right? To stay in that place of being weighed down since God has provided a solution. And and shame is also not to be ignored. No, the proper response is to acknowledge it, acknowledge our guilt, take it to God, recognize that Jesus died on the cross to address our guilt and the shame that comes along with it, and come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And what does that mean, to come to Jesus? Well, he tells us in John 6.35. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's where we learn what it means. So he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He's not saying two different things. He's saying the same thing in two different ways. He's saying to come to Jesus means to believe in him, to embrace him, to receive him for all that he is in the gospel. And then further down in John 6, 37, It says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you come to Jesus, he will never cast you out. Just a word about when Jesus says, my yoke here, my yoke is easy. In Jewish literature, yoke refers to the obligations that people had. So it could be the yoke of the law or the yoke of commandments. Jesus says, don't take the yoke of the Pharisees. They're they're weighing you down with burdens too heavy to carry. He says, my yoke is easy by comparison. The yoke of the law is to keep working and keep working, but to never actually make progress. There's the famous quote by John Bunyan. He says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Praise be to God. The Lord has promised that if we come to him, trusting in what he has done for us on the cross and through his resurrection, that he will never, ever cast us away And we'll have the promise of being with him for all eternity. And kids, this is just as true for you kids as it is for adults. So kids, you do not have to wait until you're old and crusty like your parents. (laughs) Kids, you can believe in Jesus now. Jesus will receive you now. And he promises that if you believe in him, he will save you and you will belong to him forever. That's good news for kids, and it's good news for all of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we pray that um, everyone under the sound of my voice would come to Jesus and trust in him. And Lord, for those 
who have trusted in you, help us to continually, daily, moment by moment, come to Jesus because we need you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.